Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to a brand new season of I Am Here. I Am Here is a conversational podcast that focuses on the guest and their experiences with RPGs and the RPG community. Together, we'll spend this season exploring the unique stories of community members marginalized by race, gender, sexuality, neurodivergence, and or disability. I'm really excited about the guest lineup for this season. And not only am I kicking off a new season of I Am Here today, but September is also International Podcast Month, where a new episode of content every day of the month is released, including tons of RPG actual play one-shots of a variety of games featuring so many different members of our community. As always, thank you to all of my patrons that make this show and all of my other projects possible. Austin, 12 Face Productions, Billy, Ree, Dice for Brains, Fandible, Michael, Roll Like a Girl, The Hydean Way, Adrian, Darcy, John, Landon, Michelle, Minna, Ryan, The Redacted Files, Waffles, Alice, Jason, Kelly, Laura, Max, Orion, Rain, Rob, Splinters of a Broken Sun, Tavern Tales, and The Broadswords. Thank you so much, everyone. So today I'm sitting down with Mackenzie Diarmas, an incredible creative force in the TTRPG community. She's not only published best-selling titles on the DMs Guild, such as I've Been and the Any-Winning Gnarls Candy Compendium, but she serves as the lead writer for the Islands of Sina Una and the co-designer of Matt Colville's Kingdom and Warfare. She streams, she writes, and now I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's just jump right into the episode. Enjoy. Hi, Mackenzie! I'm very excited to have you on I Am Here With Me. I'm so excited to be here. So I want to hear about your very first experience with RPGs. I had a couple of entry points into D&D and TTRPGs in general, and all of them were a little weird. Um, I know my first time playing like a tabletop game that wasn't necessarily like Monopoly or a board game was actually in my AP Calculus class. Because once we took the AP test, my teacher was like, there's no point in me trying to teach you anything because there's there, we've got a month left of the school year and you're not going to use it or remember it. So uh, you can bring board games in the class and play and we'll just have fun. And so um, a couple of my classmates at the time had brought in Avalon, which is a lying social manipulation strategy game where you try and uh, either win or fail missions depending on uh, if you're aligned with Arthur or with Mordred. And we even got my teacher to play with us. And so there was 10 of us very much yelling at each other around the table and, and accusing us of lying and uh, trying to figure out each other's tics in terms of how we were lying. And so that was my first time getting into like that role-playing aspect. But I didn't get a chance to really play D&D until... Um, sophomore year of college I had played an introductory game at a summer camp which is coincidentally the summer camp where I met my partner and he was the one who introduced me into or he was my first DM so we had done a very introductory game where we just rolled d20s and we had flat damage and we were sharing character sheets and when he went off to college he joined a D&D group I had tried to join a D&D group at my university and they said yeah sorry we're full and so I didn't have anyone to play with. So my partner came to me and he was like, hey, I want to talk to you about all the cool things that are happening in my D&D group. So I found this really cool uh, show of a bunch of voice actors playing uh, D&D around a table. It's super cool. It's called Critical Role. You should try watching it sometime. <laughs> and so then I did. And then I watched a lot. And then I surpassed him. I did the thing that you aren't supposed to do with a partner. And I just I binge watched a lot of it before he got to it. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm not going to spoil it for you now. Um, and then so one summer he ran a game and it was really fun. And then from there we decided, we realized we really liked playing D&D. &D, 
And so then we started playing one-off games with each other. And eventually, the, me playing those one-off games with him, where it was just me, uh, me playing and him DMing, led me to making a podcast, which then led me to joining a bunch of streamed games, which then led me to writing some adventures of my own and publishing them, and then going to conventions and publishing more things and starting work with a bunch of really awesome people. And now we're here. And that all kind of happened within a year. That's incredible that it happened over such a short timeline. Yeah, I think from when I actually played my very first full game, like proper game of D&D with like the full dice set and like actually making my character to like now, I think it's been a year and a half. So what do you think that tipping point was of like playing to designing and creating and being a creative within the RPG community? I think the tipping point for me was end of 2018, beginning of 2019. Um, I'm a creative writing major. So I wanted to, I went to school to make creative things as my job. I wanted to learn how to do that and do that as work and do that as my vocation. Um, but at that time, at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, I hadn't been published anywhere. I hadn't gotten any work accepted anywhere. I hadn't gotten any internships. And I was just sort of so stuck trying to make my writing and my creativity work in these forms that just wasn't sticking. And so playing D&D was something that had clicked to me. And I still don't entirely know why. But the way that the mechanics and the narrative sort of meshed together worked well with my brain and I just was like I need to put something out into the world and just have something that I can say look I did it and so I started writing on DM's Guild and eventually that led me to um doing a lot of things where I would go on Twitter and say I'm gonna do this thing and releasing it out and uh just to hold myself accountable because I had this awful habit of starting projects and then quitting because I didn't think I was good enough and that was the tipping point where I just, I needed something to do and something to create and make life worth living. And so that was what led me here. That's really neat. What was the first project that you kind of started on? And was it something that led you into other projects or opened up other opportunities? Um, so the very, very, very first thing I wrote on DMs Guild is a collection of Bard's college subclasses. It's called Bard Colleges for Starving Artists. You can really see the junior in college come out with that title. <laughs> but um, basically what had happened was Kelly the Opera Geek on Twitter uh, put out a joking tweet that was like, we should have a college of opera. And she obviously went on to do that and write that with Hannah Rose, which is an absolutely amazing subclass. But what I had done was I had uh, mocked up something in Google Docs and sent a screenshot over on Twitter. And a lot of people really liked it. And so from there I was like, well, I can put this with a couple of other subclasses and then I think someone showed me a tool I could use to maybe format it to look nice and then I can sort of draw so I can do my own art and I'll just pop that on DMs Guild so that I can say I did something. It's something I want to go back on and revise because I think the language is very off and the mechanics are not balanced and I'm pretty sure I make a lot of mistakes in terms of how I refer to like saving throws and stuff and, and it's a little, it's a very messy but it was something that I was very proud of at the time, and I still am. And it's actually something that Matt Colville read, and that's what led me to working with him on uh, Player's Guide to Capital and uh, Kingdoms and Warfare. So that's it's really weirdly full circle. 
That's really cool. Yeah, I was. I, I remember when Matt had mentioned that he had read it, and I was like, "Oh God, you read that?" And he was like, "Yeah, it was really good." And I was like, "Is it though? <laughs> Is it though?" <laughs> That's really neat. Let's talk about your DMs Guild work then. Like, what are some of the other um, things that you've published on DMs Guild, and which one are you most proud of, or do you feel was like? the piece that really moved you into or was there a piece that moved you into designing outside of the dms guild i definitely there was a piece that was the the push that got me just from doing things on independently on dms guild to much larger works and getting getting a lot of more experience in that um and it was my summer module for the rpg writers workshop it's titled i've been after a song in the musical next to normal and that adventure was something that I did because it was the first thing I had done in a long time because I really wanted to do it, not because I felt obligated to create something or push something out into the world. I chose that adventure to write because I wanted to do it. It's an adventure that's very different than my usual style. I like doing a lot of high fantasy and silly things, uh, and a couple of my other DMs guild work sort of reflect that, but with I've Been, it's very much a grounded contained module that deals a lot with mental health and talking about how we engage with things like depression and anxiety, how important it is to talk to other people and vocalize mental health because it's something that no one really likes to talk about and people have such this fear of talking about. So I was able to make mechanics that encourage the characters to talk about the things that were affecting them within the world of the game. Uh, I liked, I used that adventure to explore the idea that we like to portray depression and anxiety and all these mental illnesses as monsters that we can slay and defeat and never have to deal with again. And I wanted to try and use D&D to sort of change that perspective and have a monster that you do have to defeat when it grows very strong, but it's still there at the end of the adventure. Just maybe not as strong or not as powerful, but it's still there and it's still something that the characters have to deal with and it still resonates throughout the epilogue of the adventure. And that was this adventure that sort of not necessarily got a lot of attention, but it was something very different just been how it dealt with things tonally and how it expanded the possibility of what D&D could be. And that was kind of what pushed me into more adventure writing and more and uh, larger projects. It's really interesting to me because I haven't heard a lot about exploring mental health in D&D other than what I think can be sometimes done. How do I word this? Like, I mean, you hear about like there's insanity mechanics and there's these yeah. ableist terms that are used really. Yep. The madness table. Yeah, like the madness tables. And there's yeah. all these things that are ableist and are mm -hmm. really like don't portray mental health in yep. in a way that is empathetic, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really both fascinating and heartwarming that you've created this, uh, you know, adventure that explores that with humanity. It's something that meant a lot to me. Um, I'm, I will say I'm not the first to do it. I know Take This has done a, a lot of work with it. Their adventure, Gardens of Fog, also takes a, a slightly different angle, but similar nonetheless with dealing with mental health through D&D um, &D and mechanics, um, as well as a couple adventures in the Uncaged anthology. They deal a lot with things like grief in more empathetic ways than raw D&D 5e mechanics sometimes deal with it. Um, and I think that's just, a lot of it is... All of these adventures were written by people who 
bring news who were very new to the scene and bring new perspectives and new stories to D and D um, and the TTRPG community. And I think it's really heartwarming, like you said, to see so many people feeling more comfortable to open up and explore mechanics and use them in ways that aren't necessarily how they were written, but how they can be used to explore and engage more empathetically with the world around us. Yeah, that's a really beautiful thing. So to kind of shift a little bit, I've Been is something that you said kind of led you outside of the DMs Guild and, mm-hmm. and writing your own things. What, was, what are some of the works that you've done since I've Been that are not part of the DMs Guild? Well, most notably, I was a co-designer for uh, Matt Coville's Kingdoms and Warfare, which was a Kickstarter, I think, at the middle end of 2019. Um, so I was brought on as co-designer for that, along with James Intracasso and Sam Mannell. I've also written for D&D Beyond for the Critical Role Encounters of the Week. So in the months leading up to the release of Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, uh, D&D Beyond partnered with Wizards of the Coast to create weekly encounters based on prompts in the Wildmount book. And so I had been brought on by the lead writer of D&D Beyond, James Hake, who tasked me with writing, uh, I think, four encounters uh, set in the various different locations of Wildmount. Um, I'm also currently serving as lead writer for the Islands of Sina Una, which is a new D&D 5e setting coming out that is based on pre-colonial Filipino mythology, which is super exciting for me because I'm Filipino and it gives me this awesome opportunity to explore my heritage in a medium that I love. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because that's really neat that you're getting to explore your heritage and that it's set in this game that you love so much. It's super exciting. And it just I've learned so much already. And I've been only been on the project since uh, January. The Islands of Sina Una was a Indiegogo campaign that was at the end of 2019, I think just before PAX Unplugged. Um, I was brought on to the team as lead writer after PAX Unplugged uh, to help sort of guide the team of writers and designers um, to create this vibrant world. Uh, that we we have so much research uh, that we've been doing and collecting so many um, books and articles and myths and just sort of parsing through them and, and reading so much about what life in the pre-colonial Philippines used to be like. And looking at all these myths and these amazing creatures and sometimes absolutely terrifying monsters and beings and being able to take that mythological base and sort of map it to these mechanics that have been previously only used for dragons and illithids and beholders and and all this very much knight in shining armor kind of fantasy and being able to map that to to boats and sea serpents and these massive gargantuan like tarantula creatures and these eagles that soar down on the horizon trying to swallow the moon all all of these wonderful creatures that i have never seen anything like before represented in fiction or myth in or fiction or in games and being able to bring these things to life not only in a way that people can see that people but people can play it they can go into this world and face these giant eagles or see a massive sea serpent rise out of the ocean around them or they can put their ear to the ground and listen to the the flowers and the trees sort of hum and sing with the spirits of their own. It's so exciting to be able to create a doorway into a world that not is, is a part of my history, but can be a part of so many others as well. 
I just really love that it's drawing this inspiration from from this piece of your heritage. How did you come across the the project and um, and the meaning of being able to create something and have something where you can see your your heritage and your history in it that isn't so, um, for lack of better phrasing, white or colonized. Mm-hmm. What is that like? So I actually met one of the co-directors of the project, Joshua Mendenhall at Pax Unplugged. Uh, we got to talking a little bit and the Kickstarter, ha- or no, sorry, not the Kickstarter, the Indiegogo had just finished at that point. And I had seen it on Twitter and I had been following it really excitedly because like I said, I'm Filipino and I was like, oh my God, I, this is so much that I, I've never heard or, or seen or, or, or learned about. And I was just looking at it uh, from like, my window on Twitter going, wow, it's so cool. I wish I could join. And then Joshua at uh, PAX was, we talked, uh, we talked a little bit about the work I've been doing and uh, other projects. And then after PAX, Joshua reached out to me and was like, hey, you are a really good writer and you have a really good way of organizing words and collecting thoughts together. And we would love to have you as lead writer on the project. Um, And that's how that all got started. It's really interesting to me to approach the topic of or the the inspiration and the mythologies that inspire Sina Una because I am I'm Filipino by blood but I've been I was born in America I've been raised American I've never been to the Philippines I don't even speak a lot of the language it's something that has been very very distant from me for most of my life and a part of it is a little challenging because we approach fantasy so much with these preconceptions about how the world should be. Not because it, that is the universal truth, but that's just because how a lot of fantasy is. We just sort of assume, oh, that's the way fantasy should be because everyone else does it. And getting a chance to step back at that and look at something through a new light, and not only to look at something through this new light, but also be able to go, these were my, these stories and these myths and these creatures they're all a part of me and my history and getting to learn that and getting to sort of pull back the curtain on my own past and be able to almost talk with the people who had came before me is so wonderfully just beautiful and it's a wonderful experience. And I know somewhere it's mentioned that Sina Una means those who came first. And I think that kind of embodies what the experience is. It's getting to look into the past and see the spirits of our ancestors and acknowledge them and carry on their legacy with us as the world changes with us. That's a really powerful thing. Have you found that working on this project has connected you not just to like the history and the the mythos um, that you've been able to explore through research, but with family or friends um, who are also Filipino? Definitely among the Sina Una team, We've found a lot of connectivity among among us as we all kind of go through this. Uh, there are a, a good chunk of our team are, are native to the Philippines, but um, another good chunk of the team are people like me who are products of uh, diaspora. And it's a lot of us are having that struggle of wanting to connect to that past, but not almost not feeling legitimate enough to do that and having to bond together and realize no this is our past even if we didn't grow up there and this wasn't part of how we grew up or we tried to assimilate so hard that doesn't stop us from pushing forward and learning it now and having a community of people especially when there are people working on the same project as you being able to help when you feel 
sort of beat down or like you're not good enough to do this project, being able to have them go, we are all good enough and we are all enough to work on this. And through that, we found a lot of community among the team. And there's also just a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of heritage connection, but there's also just a lot of us learning about some very bonkers creatures that were in Filipino myth that are just kind of terrifying. And all of us who have no familiarity going, why? God, <laughs> no! And just collective um, disbelief and mild terror. Working with this team must have, or must continue to have, like, a lot of varied you know, emotional responses from feeling these like deep connections. But you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's, there's a lot going on there. Like, yeah, we, we alternate very much between, um, you know, these deep introspective talks, and then uh, very much sibling yelling at each other. <laughs> a lot of sibling yelling at each other. We all, I, I think it's only been a couple months. And we definitely have, I think, a whole like page of like, inside jokes. I think my nickname on the team is eagle bait so that's fun um, but it's it's very much it's very much like a little family of us having these moments of like really deep introspection about not only us but what the book means to the ttrpg community to the filipino community um and then having these moments of levity where we're laughing at each other or making teasing each other very lightly about spelling mistakes or um even just like joking about what, what we're assigned and what we have to research and some of the challenges we have when we when someone picks something and there are gaps in the research because a lot of information was destroyed or lost over the years. And just being able to go, ha, I'm so glad you chose that because I don't have to do the searching and stuff <laughs> like that, where we, we, it's a serious topic, but we're able to laugh about it and uh, banter with each other about the process. And it's it's such a wonderful thing. And I'm so happy and grateful every day that I get to be some small part of it. So what has been your favorite discovery in, in the research? Like, has it been a creature or a specific myth that you just like think is really hilarious or fun or neat? I think not necessarily hilarious or fun, but abjectly terrifying in the most awesome way. Um, and it's something I get to work on because I do a lot of work with the subclasses. And so one of the subclasses we are going for is the warlock otherworldly patron called the Moon Eater, which is based around the myth that there are these otherworldly creatures that surrounded the Philippines who want to, for various reasons, swallow the moon. It's sort of like the explanation for eclipses and such, but they're these monstrous creatures, and I believe there are five of them? I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I, I think there are five of them. And so... You know, you hear the myth of uh, Jormungandr, the, the Nordic uh, world serpent who circles the world and is heralded as the bringer of Ragnarok. Uh, and we have a version of that in the Philippines, except 10,000 more times more terrifying and more successful than Jormungandr will ever be. Um, her name is Bakunawa. Okay. She is a massive sea serpent. She swallowed four of the five moons and almost got the fifth until stopped by a literal god. Wow. She is amazing, and she is also terrifying. She is this massive creature of jealousy and and fervent like zeal and just hatred. And this, she's amazing. And then there's also other creatures like 
a massive lion-like creature called Arimaonga, who like runs along a ridge and swallows the moon simply because it's fun. <laughs> and that's something that the the pre-colonial Philippine people just thought about where that's one of the reasons why we have eclipse because sometimes this big lion is having fun playing along the earth, uh, the sea and the sky and just swallows it and you have to yell and make a lot of noise and, and clatter and make this thundering roar to make the lion spit it back out and things like that where it's we hear all these legends of like the Greeks how they explained eclipses and it's something that you sometimes forget people around the world see an eclipse but they all have their different myths explaining why that happened. And it's so cool being able to see a natural phenomenon that we can still see to this day, but look at a different explanation for it, that it existed at the same time the, the Greek explanations and the Nordic explanations did. Yeah, almost these tales that become yep. like, you know, stories you tell your kid or whatever, yeah. like when they can't understand science is like, yeah. Well, a child isn't going to understand me sitting here explaining why eclipses happen, so... So, okay, there's a big well. lion, and it swallowed the moon because Kitty liked to play with ball. Exactly. <laughs> like a cat playing with a ball of yarn. Oh, God, there's so much. I, I, it's like, Arimaonga is so terrifying, and it's supposed to be this massive, terrifying creature. Uh, but it's really hard as a designer for me not to go, Kitty, every time I see it. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're such a good kid. You want to swallow the moon? Yes, you do. It's 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 very bad. <laughs> Careful, you're going to end up with fan art of cute little kitties just like hugging moons. I, I'm okay with that, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm imagining now. Uh, I would love just cute little, these cute uh little celestial eaters was like oh yes you're a cute sea serpent yes you are you're gonna go munch on that moon go ahead <laughs> i love that that's awesome god yeah so you don't just work in uh like writing adventures and writing for uh sina una yep why don't we chat about that a little bit tell me mm -hmm. about some of that work i do i have worked both uh, podcast actual plays and um streamed actual plays. For podcasting, I am one half of one-on-one D&D, &D, which is uh, the podcast and the one-on-one -on -one campaign that my partner and I started back when both of us were, weren't able to access larger D&D &D groups on our own, so we were just playing off each other. Um, we alternate DMing, so sometimes he will DM and then sometimes I will DM, but they're the two different characters, but the same world uh, and interconnecting stories that sort of intertwine with each other. Um, I also, I think by the time this podcast is released, the second one will be released, but I am also part of a right now upcoming, but possibly will be released by the time this episode comes out, a podcast set in Dragonlance called Shadows of Palanthus, or Shadows Over Palanthus, where I get to play a bard, and that's a lot of fun because it's a world that has a lot of heritage and legacy in the D&D community, and it's been so much fun bringing a slightly new perspective and new characters and getting to look at uh, this world through a completely new and fresh lens um, and comparing that with some of the other players who have a long storied history with Dragonlance. Um, in terms of streaming, I am more commonly seen in the DM seat nowadays, but I do uh, equal parts uh, DMing and playing. I have been a member on Encounter Roleplay and I just love the live aspect of streaming. It's very much a, I, I'm a theater kid at heart. And so it's very much a, I, I love getting the thrive off audience energy. And there's something so wonderful about seeing a, the chat roll as you do something. 
Um, I've been over on Tales from the Mist, over on Wizards D&D, and I remember when I had done something in the very last episode, not to spoil it in case someone hasn't seen it yet, but I remember I did some, my character did a, a thing, sort of a mic drop at the, at the end of the very last episode I was in, and I remember watching the chat just fill with like all caps, just YES! YES! <laughs> and just feeling that rush of I got to make people happy and bring people joy and through creativity and storytelling. And it's so just fulfilling to know that even for a small moment, I was able to impact someone just a little bit. Yeah, I like that. That's fun. That's something that you don't get, I think, in a lot of other kinds of uh, like mediums, right? In the podcast yeah. medium, it's it's a lot slower of a response mm-hmm. or, or the response is typically, you know, text-based. Yeah. I mean, not that the chat scroll isn't, but it's it's a lot different at being live with an audience. Yeah, I, I've noticed that too, where it's like, like, is it, it's all still kind of text-based in the end, but there's something about the immediacy about being live that that sort of charges the air and the energy that you bring to the table and knowing that what happens now for mistake or not is going to be out there it's sort of freeing in a way because like you can edit a podcast and you can change things around or you can re-record things but when you're live you can't really change any of that you just gotta roll with it and there's something so freeing about knowing you're going to mess up and it's inevitable that's okay and just sort of rolling with that knowledge of failure and and letting yourself be okay with that that is just so thrilling to me yeah it's really cool so what do you love about being in the community and who inspires you and there's a lot of ways that the community still needs to you know grow and better itself but Mm -hmm. generally how have you felt your experiences in the community have been I will say that a lot of my experience, I count myself very fortunate for how my journey has gone. I know that a lot of how a lot of the reason why I was able to move so quickly was because I I was in school when this all started. And because of that, I had a lot more freedom to write creatively. And I had that privilege. And I know a lot of people don't. So I think a big part of growing in this community is realizing that it's important for me to kick down doors because that way other people who didn't have the opportunities or the time or the privilege that I did to be able to start the way I started in this community have an easier time walking through and getting involved. I know when I started out, I had a very big fear of DMing because I sort of, and it's still sort of a problem now where you look at a lot of the major actual plays and who dms them and they all have a very similar style and they all have a very similar sort of feel most if not all or no yeah most are white males and who have a long-standing history with D. and i know when i first started dming i had this fear that i was not going to be good enough because i had only been playing D for like a year give or take i had I hadn't really been DMing. I didn't have a lot of experience with other uh, other versions of D&D or other editions or other games in general. And I remember feeling this fear of what if I get it wrong? And I know that part of me being in this community is that people will look up to me and realize that if I can DM, then they can DM. I know that my sister looks at me and she's nervous about joining her D&D club at school and I want her to be able to look at me and go she does this and she's like me 
so then I can do it too. And I know I've gotten people on Twitter who have said, oh, when I saw UDM, I, re I, I want to try it myself. And I think there's something so important about that. And it's something that you don't realize is missing until you get people to, to or you get people saying that to you, saying, you helped inspire me to get started, or you are inspiring me to get started doing this, or writing about this, or talking about this. And it's... It's a vacuum that I didn't know needed to be filled, but I'm happy to do it. And there have been some instances where I've had to sort of slog through things. Instances at PAX where people wouldn't talk to me and only talk to my partner because he was a man and I wasn't. And instances where I wasn't let into my own panel because I was a woman and they told me to queue around the back instead because they didn't think I was actually the panelist. Yikes. And it sucks and it, it it's awful and I don't like it, but I know that if I can take that step and not necessarily endure that, but take the step to go, okay, I went through that, that's wrong, let's change it, then people who come after me don't have to deal with that. Yeah. And it's it's a big responsibility that I didn't expect to have when entering this community, but I have that responsibility now as a figure in the community and it's not, and I don't want to let anyone down. And I carry that responsibility with pride and knowledge and respect of the people who came before me to let me do this and the people who are going to come after me as I help make those doorways a little bit bigger. I think that's a really impressive thing. Like the way that you phrase that, the the people who started opening the doors and, you know, you're just pushing them a little bit further because one of the things that I find really inspiring is the more people I talk to and, and especially as a woman, I grew up with D&D &D being a boys game. Like that mm -hmm. was not something that girls played sort of thing. And the women that I have talked to that are into RPGs who have been in it for a longer period of time and even longer than I've been have these really horrible, like truly like horror yeah. stories, you know? Yeah, I've heard so many people. Right. And everybody, every woman I know seems to know another woman who has experienced this horror yep. story. But the thing that I find at least a little bit hopeful is that the more I talk to people, the more I hear from people like you, Mackenzie, who say, you know, I count myself quite lucky because, and, you know, you kind of give your experience, and that's not to diminish the negative experiences that you have, have had, because those are obviously like still bad and negative experiences that shouldn't have to happen at all. But it's at least a little bit hopeful that we do see things changing and we do see things shifting. And it's not at that point yet. Like you said, some of the biggest streams and podcasts are white men DMing. And that's not to say that those people are bad DMs. Oh, not at all. They're amazing. And yeah, I respect exactly. them. It's just more like it purports the idea that that's the correct way to DM. I think if, if, right. if the, if the streams that have, white male DMs are the ones who become the most successful, it perpetuates the idea that that's the quote-unquote correct way. Right. And that only people who DM like that and only people who look like that can DM. And I, it's, like I said, they're not bad DMs, but they're not the only DMs. Right. And I want to work and become 
I want to show that a, a difference in that. I want to be a DM and have that, not necessarily visibility, but just be able to have that stage and show people like, you don't have to DM like this. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can DM like this instead. Yeah. And help people find that rhythm that works best for them in games. Yeah, exactly. And it's such it's such an important role that you're taking on. And I'm really thankful for people like you, Mackenzie, who are taking on that role. It's it's meaningful to the community and it's meaningful to me. And and I think it's it's just really critical. It's it's so imperative to the growth of the community and to, like you mentioned, those doors being open for everybody to, to see somebody who isn't the quote-unquote default. Yeah. It, it's, it's something that I, I didn't necessarily sit out to do. I, I didn't start out on Twitter going, I'm gonna change the TTRPG community and, and charge into like that. It was just something that happened not necessarily naturally because i did i did bust my chops to get work out there but it was something that sort of came with the territory and i realized that like so, thanks to people a lot like you who told me how much it means to see someone like me doing some the th doing the things i'm doing and realizing that this is a part of what i am now and who i am now and i I can't shy away from that responsibility to be a leader, even if it scares me sometimes, because I know people like you and like my sister and other people in the community are counting on me to be a good example. And I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. I know at some point I will make mistakes, but I'm hoping I can learn and keep getting up and making the community a better place. That's awesome. Mackenzie, thank you so much for coming onto I Am Here and talking to me and sharing your experiences and your work and your story. It's it's really so important for uh, for the community to hear it. And I'm so glad that you made the time to be here. Thank you so much for reaching out and letting me uh, blabber on and on and on. <laughs> Mackenzie, where can we find you? What are your socials and website, Twitter handle, all of the nitty gritty? Once again, I'm Mackenzie Diarmas. I'm the lead writer for The Islands of Sina Una, which you can pre-order right now over on thedeckofmany.com. I'm also a contributor to Mage Hand Press's current Kickstarter for the Dark Matter Starter Kit, which you can find the link for over on their Twitter at Mage Hand Press. Uh, currently, we're about 9k from getting everything implemented into Roll20, which is super exciting. Um, I also have some things coming out with MCDM Productions, uh, both Kingdoms and Warfare, and uh, an article in their upcoming magazine Arcadia, which will be accessed via their Patreon. Last but certainly not least, I have a bunch of projects that I am legally not allowed to talk about yet, but when I do, uh, I will be announcing them and screaming very excitedly about them over on my twitter at mackenzie lane da uh, thank you so much for having me this is super awesome awesome thank you so much again support for i am here is made possible by listeners like you you can help keep the show and all of my other projects such as rpg casts and tabletop mic drop going for as little as one dollar a month when you become a patron on patreon visit patreon.com slash rpg casts and make your pledge the intro and outro music was composed by emily e mayo all graphic art and assets were created by Matthias Grelly. Are you looking for a new RPG podcast to listen to? RPG Casts is a podcast directory dedicated to being the most up-to-date resource for currently releasing RPG podcasts. Visit rpgcasts.com, peruse the directory, or reach out to me on Twitter at RPG underscore casts for a recommendation.
Looking for RPG news and articles? Head on over to tabletopmicdrop.com, a publication about tabletop role-playing games, storytelling, and the RPG podcast industry. You can also subscribe to the monthly newsletter so that you can keep up to date on the latest in the industry and get RPG podcast reviews and recommendations. Thank you so much for listening to I Am Here. It means so much.